0: Okay, uh, good morning everyone. Uh, Welcome to citizens. If you're new or visiting for the first time, my name is Jason. I have the privilege of serving as the pastor uh, here at the church. Um, If you've been with us for, uh, you know, the last uh, two to three months, we've been in a series through the book of Mark and today is the final uh, sermon in that series. Uh, Mark is one of my favorite uh, books of the Bible and so I'm kind of sad to have this series come to an end. Um, If you've been with us, though, um, you know, you probably like kind of, you know, I've I've mentioned this in previous sermons that uh, the gospel of Mark more than any other uh, gospel is is just super fast, action packed. It's kind of meant to be uh, played like a movie in our heads. You know, there's there aren't that many like long teaching sections. Uh, It just moves from scene to scene and leaves so much up to the reader uh, to fill in the gaps. It leaves so much uh, to our imaginations. And so as I read this last passage in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 16, uh, verses 1 to 8, I kind of want us to keep doing the same thing. Imagine you've been watching a, a movie this entire time, and imagine this is how the movie comes to an end. Okay, so Mark chapter 16, verses 1 to 8. And if you can choose your translation, I'm going to be reading from the ESV, the English standard version. Mark 16:1 to eight. this is the reading of God's word. When the Sabbath was past, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on, the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Amen. Amen. Um, One of my favorite movies of all time is the movie Inception, uh, one of uh, Christopher Nolan's uh, many masterpieces a movie that came out in 2010. I think I've watched the ending uh, of that movie over 100 times. And um, when that movie came out, every conversation I had with anyone was about that ending. I think I've analyzed it and made connections to the point where uh, I'm pretty sure I made connections that Christopher Nolan himself didn't even think about when he he directed that movie. Uh, But for those of you who haven't seen it, Uh, basically it's a movie uh, about a professional thief played by Leonardo DiCaprio who enters uh, people's minds to try to extract information or implant information in their heads and he enters their minds through their dreams okay and the entire movie is kind of uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and his team infiltrating people's subconscious through their dreams and they go sometimes have to go multiple levels into the dream so you know it's, it's a dream within a dream within a dream within a dream that's where the the idea of inception comes from and um because you know they're kind of constantly going in between reality and the dream world they need a way to to figure out where they are and so uh leonardo dicaprio's character car- carries around something uh cal- he calls a totem and he carries around this spinning top um, so that, uh, and he spins that top anytime uh, he he wants to figure out where he is, and if the top spins forever, he knows he's in dream world, and if the top falls over as a spinning top should, he knows he's back in reality. Well, the way the movie ends um, is, you know, the, the mission has been completed, Leonardo DiCaprio's character is with his family, and then he spins his totem one last time and uh, right before you know if the top is going to fall over or if it's going to spin forever, the screen fades to black. Okay? And uh, depending on the kind of person you are, uh, you either thought that was a genius ending or you that was the most disappointing, unsatisfying uh, ending a person could, could have written for the story. Um, I remember watching it in the theater, and there was like a collective gasp um, right when the movie ended, I think someone even yelled, no. Um, and um, that, it kind of has that sense of being unfinished. Okay, it's very frustrating. Well, that's basically the ending to Mark's gospel. Okay, this is how Mark decides to end uh, what is supposedly the greatest story ever told. Um, if you remember the first line Of the book of mark mark 1 1 it opens with these epic words the beginning of the gospel of jesus christ the son of god and then it ends with the words for they were afraid for they were afraid very strange way to end it um i you know you can't even fully understand like the gravity of ending it like that because in the original language The last word in the gospel of Mark is a conjunction. It's a conjunction. Okay, so it doesn't even make sense that a person would end the story like that. That's like if I said today, I have the greatest story you will ever hear and. And that was it. That's how Mark ends his gospel. And there's something about that that doesn't really sit well with us because we're talking about the resurrection, We're talking about the moment on which all of Christianity hinges. We're talking about uh, this moment that is supposed to end in celebration and victory and triumph. On Easter Sunday, this day every year when we as the church celebrate the resurrection, what do we do? That's the day we pull out all the stops. That's the day we bring out the flowers. That's the day we bring out all our decorations. That's the day we have the photo booth when our families get all dressed up. But we don't see any of that here. Mark's gospel ends unresolved, unfinished, uncertain. Mark gives it one line. He says, he has risen, he's not here. No fanfare, no crowd, nobody's falling on their knees in worship. Um, Those of you who, who grew up in youth group or you've ever been on an overseas mission trip, you know, we always did those skits, like those really dramatic gospel presentations. And it's the same skit every time. Uh, We still do it. Um, And usually there's like someone who's the main character. They first start out in a church group and they're praying and they're reading their Bible. And then the bad friends wearing all black come out like they're like the party friends. And then they like pull you to Satan. Um, And then at some point Jesus shows up and he gets nailed to a cross. And then how does that skit end every time? The same way everyone worships jesus who's wearing like a white cloth or something right every time now imagine watching one of those skits and the last scene is everyone running away from the tomb in fear would it make sense and yet this is how the gospel of mark ends and we all want i think as human beings we all want the hero to have the last word not sure if you noticed But Jesus doesn't even appear in the final scene. He doesn't speak. He doesn't show his face. Mark's gospel ends in silence. Now, you might be a little bit confused because if you look down at your Bibles or whatever app you're using for scripture, you probably notice that technically, Mark doesn't seem to end at verse 8. It looks like it goes until verse 20, but you'll probably see a little note maybe in italics, right after verse 8, that says the original manuscripts do not have verses 9 to 20, something like that. And there's been a lot of debate as to whether or not verses 9 to 20 were a part of Mark's original gospel or if these were added later. And I would say the general consensus now among most modern scholars is that this was not Mark writing verses 9 to 20. They just look, they just look and sound like they're written in a completely different style from the rest of the book. And so you have to ask then, why would someone feel the need to add an alternate ending? Same reason all youth groups get in the way they do. Because we as human beings need closure. We don't like things being left in the air. We don't like uncertainty. We need things to make sense. But if Mark, Is who uh, is writing in the way he's been writing this entire time you have to ask yourself what if this ending is intentional what if this ending is designed to make us feel a little uncomfortable what if this ending isn't supposed to make perfect sense what if this ending is supposed to raise more questions Than answers. That's what Mark has been doing all along, forcing us to confront all of our preconceived notions about who Jesus is. And so it makes perfect sense that Mark would end this story in a way that flies in the face of all of our expectations. And so today I kind of want to unpack these final verses for us because I think it kind of ties up this entire series. Okay, it's basically what Mark has been doing all along. Now the first thing you may have noticed Uh, is that the three protagonists in this final scene are all women. Put another way, the primary witnesses to the empty tomb are three women. Now, for those of us listening to this in L.A. in 2021, that may not be strange, but you have to understand that in that time and culture, I mean, this would have been insulting. This would have been offensive. Um, We've talked about it in multiple weeks um, that women in that time had no authority, they had no power, no prestige, right? Um, their, their, Their words were not even admissible in a Jewish court of law. And so if you wanted to convince a first century Jew of anything, you knew never to put women at the center of the story. Certainly not at the center of the most pivotal moment in human history, the resurrection. And yet, isn't this just so indicative of who Jesus is? If you remember last week, we looked at a story in Mark 14 with the woman with the alabaster jar, and this woman finds herself in a crowd full of the most powerful, wealthy Jewish elite, and Jesus points to her. Jesus singles her out and says, she gets what none of you get. She's the only one who gets it. And you see, in our society and in our culture, everything is set up so that the, 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 the people who have access are the people who have more. The people who have access to every, uh, to every luxury and privilege in this life are the people who have more, more friends, more popularity, more money, more power. And yet this show, if this story shows us anything, it shows us something about who matters in the kingdom of God. It's not surprising that the first people to bear witness the resurrection of jesus christ are not famous celebrities they're not the wealthy they're not the influential they're three ordinary women this is what jesus has been saying all along this is a different kind of kingdom where the last shall be first and the first shall be last and i think it's such a beautifully subtle detail that in mark 16 all three of the women are remembered by name while the young man in the tomb, who many scholars believe is some kind of angelic figure, is not. And you can underestimate the importance of that point, that these three women are named in Mark's gospel, are named at the end of the story. They're named as the protagonists here. And I think this should give us a lot of comfort if you're sitting here today and you feel unseen, you feel overlooked, or you feel unworthy. If this tells us anything, it's that Jesus sees you and He remembers you by name, not because of anything you bring to the table, but simply because of who you are. We all know how it feels when somebody we perceive as important remembers our name. You know, when I was in ninth grade, I was an insecure, short, chubby kid. Um, I went through puberty a little bit late in life, and um, I never felt like I fit. I fit in, and I still remember. Uh, I'm walking down the halls in ninth grade, and there was a, there was a senior who was the, one of the most popular guys at school. He was the captain of our water polo team. Uh, Cerritos, we didn't have a good football team. Um, so, you know, if you were the captain of the water polo team, you know, you were the best, okay? You were the most popular guy. And he's walking with his back towards me, and he kind of bumped into me uh, in the hallway, and he turned around, and he said, My bad, Jason. And I was like, Oh! <gasps> it was like the world stood still. You know, and I had to act cool about it, so I was like, oh, no, you good, you good. Um, but inside, man, my heart was beating. And all morning, I was racking my head, trying to figure out, how does he know my name? And I realized, he, I realized later he was in my math class. And so he, he wasn't the smartest guy, but he was the most popular guy. Uh, um, but, you know, all day long, you know, it, like, I kind of walked with a, with, with a little more pep in my step, you know? Like, I was still the same guy, but, you know, I started, I, you know, I maybe said hi to some people I normally wouldn't say hi to. I had the courage to say and try and do some things that I normally wouldn't have done otherwise simply because someone I perceived as important remembered my name. And so the very fact I mean, we might not feel it, but if you were a first-century reader, you would have felt it. The very fact that Mark names these three women is so significant. And I know this is a kind, that was a kind of a ridiculous example, but let me ask you, how would your life look different if you truly understood that you mattered to the creator of the cosmos? Like, really mattered. That the creator of the universe didn't just see you, but he remembered you by name. How would it change the way you view yourself? How would it change the way you approach your life? Would you be so intent about preserving a certain image or protecting your image? Maybe you might try and say and do some things you would not have tried otherwise. It changes things. Second thing I want to point out here that I think is really important is that the reality of the resurrection doesn't automatically set everything right in the world. Okay? If you notice in the text, the women go to the tomb afraid and they leave the tomb afraid. Right? As much as this story highlights and honors these three women, even these women don't fully understand what's happening. They don't understand the significance of this moment. You have to understand that these women have just experienced the most traumatic weekend of their lives. They've watched Jesus Christ be crucified, right? They're not in the right mental headspace, which is why they're going to the tomb, and they don't even know what they're going to find. They don't even know how they're going to get to Jesus' body. You have to understand that these women don't go to the tomb expecting to see it empty, They go to the tomb expecting to see a dead body. This is why they're carrying spices with them. They're going to embalm Jesus' corpse. But they don't even know how they're going to do it, which is why it says they're asking each other, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? They're going there with zero idea of how they're going to do what they've set out to do. You ever feel like that? You ever feel like you're walking around and everything is just murky? Everything's still cloudy in your mind? You got all this anxiety? You got all this stress? And you don't know. You don't know what to expect. You know, like, uh, right now, all of us are coming out of a collective trauma. Trauma. And we're all trying to figure out what life is going to look like post-pandemic. I mean, I don't know. The future is unclear. And maybe some of us right now, we feel purposeless. We don't know what the next job is going to be. We've just quit, and we have no idea what we're going to do next, and nothing makes sense. You have to understand that this is exactly how these women feel as they're approaching the tomb. And you would think, right, that once they get to the tomb, you would think that all of a sudden everything makes sense. They have this moment of clarity. They see this young man sitting and standing in the empty tomb saying Jesus is risen. You would think all of a sudden they would say, "Oh my goodness, this is it. He's risen." No, it doesn't say that. It says they were alarmed. It still doesn't make sense. Now, a lot of people, uh, I meet a lot of people at our church who are seeking, and I love that um, we can be a safe space for people curious about the faith. And something that that I hear all the time is, I wish Jesus would just, like, do something super miraculous in my life, and then I would believe. Like, I wish, like, you know, if he just showed himself in a very miraculous way, 100%, I would believe. Why does he make it so hard? Do you really think you would believe? there's a man in a white robe standing inside an empty tomb with a stone that's so large that a normal human being could not roll it away saying Jesus has risen and they still don't understand human beings are prone to fear and anxiety that is who we are that's how our hearts are bent and we experience miracles every day of our lives, and we fail to see them. We experience God's grace and his hand on so many parts of our lives, and, and we, don't think that, we don't think that's a big deal. We take these things for granted. It is an absolute miracle, given the way that I drive, that I'm still alive. It is a miracle that we have people in our lives who continue to love us even when we do things that are unlovable. It's a miracle that of all the places we could have been, we could be living right now, we happen to be living in a city like Los Angeles. It's not because we're so great. It's not because we deserve it. And yet we rarely see these things as miracles of God. We rarely see these things as testaments of God's hand in our lives. These women are standing in the immediate aftermath of the greatest miracle ever performed, and they're still terrified. They're not thinking, oh my goodness, it makes sense. They're not connecting the dots, remembering what Jesus said when he said, I'm going to die, and then on the third day I'm going to be raised. No, they're not thinking that at all. They're just still as scared as they were before they heard the news. And in a strange way, this should bring comfort to all of us. You know, the Christian life can be so frustrating, right? Because uh, you can hear the gospel preached every Sunday. You can be in a community group. You can go see a therapist every week. You can serve. You can do all these different things. You can read your Bible. You can pray. And at the end, You can still be anxious and afraid that is the posture of the human heart loneliness still hurts after you become a believer depression still exists after you become a believer you still feel the ache of death we still feel all of these things people still suck Life is still really hard. And Christians, we like closure. We like to put a bow on everything. And that's why we can't stand like sitting there in the messiness and the discomfort of it all. So we throw around Christian cliches to make sure we don't feel sad. But we know that does nothing. And I believe Mark gives us a gift. I believe this ending is is such a gift the women aren't in the tomb singing hallelujah christ is risen they're silent and afraid right and, and and you would think it would be so easy right for jesus to just show up and be like don't worry i'm here it's really me i am risen from the grave but he doesn't he never shows up mark's gospel ends in silence and if you're frustrated today because you know what the gospel says conceptually, but for some reason it doesn't, you don't feel like it's doing anything for your life, or you've experienced heavy trauma, or you're going through something really dark right now, and you feel like God is silent, I want you to know that you're not alone. Mark's gospel is for you. This ending is for you. The women in the story who are the only ones who remotely get it, even they don't get it. And so if you're sitting in that space right now, I want you to know it's okay. You don't have to try to will yourself or pull yourself up by the bootstraps. It's okay to just sit in that discomfort, in that messiness. Keep in mind that Mark is writing this gospel for persecuted Christians who have never seen Jesus nor heard Jesus speak. And I believe this ending is for them. The silence is for them. This silence honors their present trauma. It's a silence that doesn't just resort to quick fixes or band-aids. You know, this is the human—you know, this is the human tendency, right? We always want to want to fix it. We always want to fix problems, and so we run to these quick solutions. And Mark's gospel allows us to just sit in silence and discomfort. Uh, you know, after George Floyd last year, um, I went to a prayer vigil where we took a moment of silence for eight minutes and 46 seconds, the amount of time George Floyd had a knee pressed against his neck. And I gotta tell you, it was really hard. We took a moment of silence, and for the first maybe two minutes, you could hear a pin drop. And then maybe minute three, four, you could start hearing sniffles around the room. And then by the end, you could hear like intermittent wailing across the room, and it was this uncomfortable space, but people needed permission to just sit there. People needed permission to grieve, and silence honors that grief. Silence honors the process. Silence honors the weight of our trauma. Silence honors all of our baggage, and this is what Mark's gospel gives us mark gives us permission to grieve and what this ending also shows us is that the resurrection doesn't mean we stop sinning you know what i find really interesting the first act of these faithful women after they see the empty tomb is an act of disobedience i want you to think about that you just saw the resurrection You just experienced the empty tomb and their first act. And we read, I mean, these women are hailed as faithful followers of Jesus. Their first act is an act of disobedience. You ever feel like that? You ever hear the gospel preached on Sunday? The moment you get into the car, you're yelling at your spouse. Happens to me all the time. And I preach the gospel every week. It's very frustrating. It's very frustrating. And yet this is what we see. The first act is an act of disobedience. I want you to think about this. Everywhere else in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus does these miracles, right? He shows himself to be all-powerful. He shows himself to do some crazy things. And then you know what happens? He says, don't tell anyone about it. And what does everyone do? They tell everyone about it. The one time in Mark's Gospel, Jesus says, go tell everyone about it. It says they're silent. They tell no one. We always do what we shouldn't do. Every parent knows this. You want to get your child to do something? Tell them to do the opposite of what you want them to do. This is the posture of the human heart. And by the time we get to the last verse of Mark's gospel, everyone in the story has failed. Like even up to Mark chapter 16, uh, verse 7, I still have hope for these women. I'm like, okay, everyone has failed, but these three women, they're our final hope. And then Mark 8 ends with the women failing too. The religious leaders, the ones who more than anyone should have recognized Jesus for who he is. These are people who studied the scriptures their entire life. They failed. The disciples, the ones who dropped everything to follow Jesus at one point, they failed. And now, even these women, the women who loved Jesus enough to go visit him after his death, even they failed. Which brings me to the final point it's not about us. It's not about us. The underlying theme of Mark's gospel is that we will always get it wrong. Put another way, the gospel is not about our faithfulness. It's about the power of God, which overcomes our weaknesses and our inadequacies. You know, the way that this gospel ends, you know, you could see it as being very hopeless right? Because the way this gospel ends is with these women failing to carry out the task they've been given. But the fact that this story exists at all means that at some point their stories were told. And that at some point God's plan was fulfilled. That at some point between the empty tomb and between the writing of Mark's gospel, God's plan was fulfilled we don't know how we don't know when it probably wasn't the way we would have envisioned it but god's plan was fulfilled and we know it was not because of humanity's faithfulness but because of god's faithfulness and there's one glimmer of hope that this angelic figure in the tomb gives us the angelic figure doesn't just say he has risen he isn't here he says jesus is going before you to galilee There you will see him, just as he told you. You don't see him now. He might feel absent to you today, but he's gone before you. And at some point, you will see him. This morning, I know some of us are going through some difficult circumstances. Life is hard. We live in a broken world. Our relationships are broken. People are hard to deal with. Work is difficult. But know this, anything you will face in this life, anything you will have to endure in this life, even in the moments you feel like Jesus is is absent, this should give us hope that he has gone before you. And we don't know how or we don't know when or we don't know like what is going to come of our story, but we know that ultimately God is faithful and his plan will be fulfilled and ultimately we will see Jesus. And we know this because Jesus goes before us and he doesn't just face everything we face in this life. He's overcome everything we will have to face in this life. Humiliation, he's faced it and he's overcome it. Rejection, he's faced it and he's overcome it. Loneliness, he's faced it, and he's overcome it. He goes before you. You know, to close, um, the part that gets me choked up every time I read this passage is this small little detail you may have missed in verse 7 when the young man in the tomb says, but go, tell his disciples and Peter, that Jesus is going before you to Galilee. His disciples and Peter. I always wondered why, Jesus, uh, why, why this uh, young man would single out Peter. right? Does this mean he's not one of the disciples? Why is Peter even mentioned at all? I don't even think Peter deserves to be mentioned because if you remember, the last image we have of Peter is at the end of Mark 14 after he's just disowned Jesus three times. I mean, you want to talk about an epic failure. Peter is it. Talk about stabbing your best friend in the back when he needs you the most. And this is someone who watched Jesus do everything. This is someone who watched and witnessed firsthand Jesus heal the sick. Jesus calm the storm. Jesus feed the 5,000. Jesus cast out demons. And yet when his feet were put to the fire, Peter had no problem abandoning Jesus in his darkest hour. And at the end of Mark 14, the last glimpse we get of Peter is of Peter breaking down, getting on his knees, and weeping bitterly. He's given up on himself. He hates himself. And that's why I think it's so profound here in verse 7 that this angel tells the women to go tell his disciples and Peter just in case peter thinks he's off the team make sure you tell him too he's still on the team just in case he's off somewhere reevaluating his life make sure you go bring him back jesus doesn't give up on us even though we give up on ourselves jesus never gives up on us even when we've given up on ourselves jesus doesn't give up on us no matter how great our failure and no matter how many our faults. Following Jesus is about second, third, fourth, and fifth chances. And I don't know who needs to hear this today, but my guess is that some of us sitting here are feeling like Peter. We are feeling the weight of our past shame and guilt. We feel inadequate, we feel unworthy, Life looks hopeless because we can't seem to get anything right, and I want you to know this. The gospel was never about our ability to get it right. Jesus starts the story, and he ends the story. The story doesn't start with you, and it doesn't end with you. Discipleship is established by Jesus' call and is sustained by his power and his mercy alone jesus doesn't just say follow me and then leave you to do the rest jesus says follow me and he says i will carry you from beginning to end this is the good news and when you understand that you realize that maybe this isn't an ending after all maybe what mark is trying to show us is that the resurrection is not the end of the gospel story it's the beginning of the gospel story Maybe it's left unfinished so that Mark can pass the baton to us. Maybe this is Mark's invitation for you and for me to join in on the gospel story, to be a part of proclaiming the good news everywhere we go. And we, like the women, we may not be able to see Jesus in the flesh today. We we may not be able to hear his audible voice, but know this, Jesus goes before us. And there will come a moment when we do see him face to face. We may be gripped by fear. We may be gripped by insecurity. We may be gripped by panic. And yet it was never about us to begin with. And so the question remains, and let me pose this question for you. Because I think the way Mark ends his gospel begs the question, how will you now choose to respond now that you've been led in on the good news that the tomb is empty. What will you do? How will you choose to live your life? How will you choose to live your life for the rest of today? How will you choose to live your life when Monday morning comes around? Will you choose forgiveness or will you choose vengeance? Will you choose selfishness or will you choose sacrifice? Will you choose greed or will you choose generosity? Will you choose condemnation or judgment or will you choose love? And if Mark has taught us anything, it's that the kingdom of God doesn't depend on us. It will prevail with or without us, but the question still remains, which kingdom will you live in? Let's pray. First, I wanna just allow us to sit in silence for even just a minute. Because I know people are going through some heavy things right now. And I think it's, our, it's just our human inclination to wanna rush to quick fixes. And I believe it's in our silence sometimes that we experience the presence and nearness of God the most. And so I want to kind of open up a space for us to just be silent with our thoughts, silent with whatever we're going through, silent in the presence of God. Gracious God, we come humbly before you this morning, and many of us come feeling like the women approaching the tomb. We're dealing with some heavy stuff. We have um, unaddressed hurt, unresolved trauma, unresolved shame in our hearts. We're fearful, we're anxious. And everything just feels cloudy. But thank you, God, that the gospel is the good news that it's not up to us to get ourselves out of this space. That this story doesn't begin with us and it doesn't end with us. That the story moves on in spite of us and that the story is about your grace and your power and your mercy prevailing over sin, death, and this world. so god this morning we place our hope in the fact that even if you feel absent in this moment even if you feel silent in this moment we place our hope in the fact that the cross shows us that you were willing to go to the very ends of the earth you were willing to sacrifice every ounce of your being for us and that we matter in your eyes and i pray that that in itself would give us bring our souls a deep sense of comfort and peace. God, I pray for all of my hurting brothers and sisters uh, in this room today. Spirit, I ask that you would cover them with your love, that you would cover them with your mercy, that you would cover them with your protection and your strength. We need you because without you, all of us will fail. We are broken flawed human beings. Lord, thank you that because of the gospel you now write a new story in and through us that we can be a part of bringing your kingdom on earth, on earth as it is in heaven. So thank you, Jesus, for your mercy and your love. We worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.